when I was in college, uh, I went to college in Chicago. I've talked about that at Moody Bible Institute. And there's this little uh, hole-in-the-wall place in Chicago called the Billy Goat Tavern. Have you ever heard of the Billy Goat Tavern? Um, you're a sinner if you know the SNL sketch that made it popular. But um, <laughs> where they talk about cheeseburger, cheeseburger, that's, that's that. That's uh, the Billy Goat Tavern. It's kind of a, uh, a Chicago uh, staple. A lot of people will go there and visit. It's not much to look at. But uh, while I was there, I got to visit a couple of times, not for the tavern part, for the restaurant part, okay? Let's just be clear, uh, to get one of their cheeseburgers. And uh, there was a guy there, and I didn't know this story about him at the time. He really stands out. He's quite a character. Uh, his name is uh, Book, and, and Book, who, who serves hamburgers there and serves drinks there, um, I came across this, this story in the Chicago Tribune that actually took place during my time there. There's a writer at the Chicago Tribune named John Cass, and he would go to the Billy Goat Tavern. And uh, when he would go to the Billy Goat Tavern, he would talk to Book, and, uh, and he's from Morocco. And he really loves his homeland of Morocco, and he really likes the king of Morocco. And when John Cash went there and he was talking uh, to this guy, he said, Hey, do you want to see... Um, my letters. And Cass said, uh, uh, okay. And so sure enough, the guy goes back, pulls out, and brings to this uh, reporter for the Union Tribune these letters. And they're letters from the king of Morocco to a guy who serves drinks in a bar in Chicago. And he's like, are these real? And he says, yeah, they're real. He's like, I would write him letters, and then he would write me back. The king of Morocco, Muhammad VI, would spend time writing letters to a bartender in Chicago. And these were like friendly letters. These were like detailed letters. And so Cass, he was wondering about the validity of these things. And so he actually went to the consulate in Chicago, the Moroccan consulate, just to ask one of the people there about that. And the, the guy said to him, he said, yeah, no, our king, he does this. He writes letters to his people. And then here's, here's the quote. He says, it happens a lot, the official said. He loves his subjects. It's a crazy thing to think about. I want to show you a picture. This is King Mohammed. He came to power in uh, 1999. Um, this guy with all this wealth and with all this po power would take the time out of his busy schedule to write letters to really a, a, a nobody in Chicago. There's no relation. This guy just simply wrote his king a letter, and the king responded to him. It's really a remarkable story that a king would take the time in the modern age to do something like this. And it says a lot about King Muhammad. And as I heard that story and I thought, I've actually met this guy who got these letters, I thought to myself, if you want to know what a king is like, just look at how he interacts with his subjects. You want to know some of his character, one of the best ways to identify what's in his heart is to just look at how he interacts with his subjects. Now today, everybody know what today is in the church calendar? What are we celebrating today? Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, that Sunday some 2,000 years ago when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, the one time in his ministry where he 
publicly acknowledged and welcomed the acknowledgement of the fact that he was the Messiah, the coming king. In fact, here's the quote of what the people chanted. Do you remember this? They, as Jesus entered into Jerusalem, said, Hosanna to the son of David. Do you know what that pronouncement is? Do you know who the son of David is? Do you know who David was? He was the king of the Jews. They're saying, Hosanna to the king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. 2,000 years ago on Palm Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem and and boldly and clearly proclaimed himself to be king. Now, not a king like they were expecting at the time, but it was the one instance where he kind of pulled back the veil and he said, yes, this is who I am. See, the pronouncement of Palm Sunday is the pronouncement that Jesus is king. That's what we celebrate today. But as we consider that statement, Jesus is king, it begs a question. A question that, praise the Lord, God's word is ready with the answer for, and it's the question, what kind of king is Jesus? What kind of king is Jesus? You see, throughout human history, there have been examples of many different types of kings. Some, like King Muhammad, who take the time to actually write a letter to their subjects in a foreign land. Others who have used their power and their might to oppress, to abuse, to serve their own selfish interests. And when we come to Palm Sunday and we say that Jesus is the king, like how do you hear that? What do you think? What images come to your mind when you think about a king? See, there's something that happens in and around the triumphal entry, something that I find tremendously fascinating. In each one of the gospel accounts, right before Jesus is arrested, there are these records of the days leading up to the triumphal entry and Jesus' eventual arrest and crucifixion. And each one of the gospel accounts record for us these encounters that Jesus has with his people. When you actually take a step back and you look at the Gospels, when you think about the question, what kind of king is Jesus? And I just said earlier that one of the ways you know what a king is like is how he engages his, sub- his subjects. In the Gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see Jesus doing this right around the triumphal entry. He has very specific and intentional encounters with, with people. And what I want to do this morning is something that I I haven't really ever uh, done before. Normally, we like to just go to one passage in God's Word. Usually, we're preaching through a book. We like to go to one passage, and we we just exegete. We we pull out of just that one passage. But today, we're going to cover a few chapters of God's Word because it helps us to answer this question, what kind of king is Jesus? And and so we're going to discover that God's Word gives us a very clear, clear answer. And so today, if you've been a Christian for a long time, I believe here's what's going to happen. This time together, my hope, my prayer is at least, that it will create in you a deeper longing and love and affection for Jesus as your king. That when you leave here on this Palm Sunday, you're going to say, I, I see my Jesus in a new way, or I'm reminded of who my Jesus is as my king, and your love and affection will grow for him. And if you're exploring Christianity today, maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you're, you're here because it's near Easter time, and, and maybe it's something you did growing up, 
My prayer for you is that you will see the kind of king Jesus is and you say, that's the king I want reigning and ruling in my life. So, are you ready to learn? Are you ready to grow? In order to do that, you're going to need to go. Go to Luke chapter 18. That's where we're going to start this morning. Luke chapter 18. We're going to spend our time in the gospel, Luke, so you're not going to have to flip around a lot. Some of the scriptures will be up on the screen. And I haven't said this every Sunday, but... Also, if you don't have a Bible, I know we have electronic devices, you can download an app, but we always have Bibles in the back there by the sound booth that are our gift to you if you, if you want them. So, so here we go. We're looking to answer the question this morning, what kind of king is Jesus? Well, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus is coming towards the end of his ministry. This is just days before the triumphal entry. And days before, he's about to be crucified. And so crowds are building. There's anticipation. Why was there such a huge crowd to welcome him into Jerusalem? It's because this is the climax of his ministry. His name and renown was going out. So all these people are coming to Jesus. And then we come to this passage. He's teaching the crowds. And look with me at verse 15 of chapter 18. Here's what the scriptures say. Now... They were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Stop right there. Jesus has these large crowds. Uh, momentum is swelling. And back in Jesus' day, one of the things that you did, if you recognized someone as a great teacher, as a, as a rabbi, is that you would often go to them as an individual, and you'd want that individual to lay their hand upon you and to give you a blessing. Now, some people got it in their mind. They said, well, we don't want just that for ourselves. We want our children to receive a blessing from this great teacher. And a lot of people see the words here, and it says that they brought the infants, the little ones, uh, to him. And they think that this was mothers doing this, all right? They think, oh, mom's bringing it. Actually, that's not the case. Later on in the text, we're going to see that the they that's being referred there is a masculine pronoun. So these were dads who are bringing their children to have Jesus bless them. But what do the disciples do? Do we know this story? They say what? No, don't bother the master. Don't bother Jesus with these kids. And we pick on the disciples, and I'm going to get to that in just a minute. But look at Jesus' response. What does Jesus do? Does he tell them to stay away? He says, no, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall enter it. All right, what's happening here? This is a famous story if you've grown up in the church, but I don't want us to miss the magnitude of the moment. As I said a moment ago, the disciples often get picked on for, for telling the people to keep the children away from Jesus. But you know what, folks? The disciples are only doing what was culturally acceptable in the day. You see, we don't we look at children today, children are, are really uh, valued, and we, we invest a lot in children. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, but in Jesus' day, children, until they came of age, children, until they were actually able to help out around the house, were, were viewed as a burden and as a waste. Let me explain what I mean. If you're living in Jesus' day, you're literally living day to day for your daily what? bread, right? And so you're in an agrarian society. You're building crops. And so children have to be fed. Did you know that? They have to be fed. They have to be watered. They're like plants in that regard. 
And if you've got a little baby, and then it's growing to a toddler and a child, and it's not able to help in the field, it's not able to do anything around the home to support the life of the home, all you're doing is expending money and energy and food into something that all it's doing is, guess what? Consuming. And so, like, we might view that as being harsh, but children really, until that they could actually help out around the house and do the chores, they were definitely second-class citizens. They didn't have worth and they didn't have value until they could actually contribute. So when the disciples say, don't bother Jesus with the children, it was just the attitude of the day. It's not like people hated kids. It's just they didn't have value and worth until they could contribute. Some of you are like, I still have kids who are in their 20s that are like that. Anyways, that's another story. <clears throat> but in Jesus' day, this was the view. And so what does Jesus do, though? He goes up against the culturally acceptable idea that the weaker people, that the less valuable people shouldn't bother the more powerful people. And the disciples say, this is what we do. We keep the weak and the worthless away. And Jesus says, what are you doing? Let the children come to me. That wasn't just a thing. He's like, oh, they're so cute. Come on. I have got time for the kids. That's not the message that Jesus was trying to communicate. He was trying to communicate this very profound and simple message. And it's this. Jesus is a king who sees all people as valuable. Those children weren't viewed in that society as valuable or as having any kind of worth. Jesus says, let them come to me because I'm a king who with all of my subjects welcomes people in. I see all people as value. In society, children didn't have that kind of value. Jesus says, they do have value. They do have worth because Jesus, let me see, let me get this right. He is the son of God. He is God incarnate, the God who made heaven and earth, the God who said, let us make man in our image. So every human being who's ever created in the eyes of Jesus is created in the image of God and God doesn't make mistakes. And so every person, small or old, are precious in our value in his sight. And he doesn't just do this with children. If you know the gospel stories, you know that he does this with women as well. Women in the same way were not viewed as having the same worth or value in that society as men did. Yet Jesus comes and he esteems women. What's he doing? He's showing us how he interacts with his subjects. When he's interacting with the vulnerable, when he's interacting with the weak, when he's interacting with those that the world says, you know what, you shouldn't spend time on them. Jesus says, no. I engage them because they are valuable. When you want to know what the kind of king Jesus is, he's a king who sees all people as valuable. Now, this isn't about me coming and preaching a message about building up your self-esteem. It's not, it's not intended to be that at all. It's intended to make much of a God who with all the power and with all of the worth comes and says, and yet still, I will engage you. But now there's something that happens right after this encounter. It's a fascinating thing. You see, some people hear a message like this and they see how Jesus cares for the vulnerable and, and he gives them value and he gives them worth. He says, I see you. I don't push you away. And sometimes what Christians will do is they'll say, you know what? We got to focus on the vulnerable. We got to focus on the weak. That's who Jesus cared about. And in a sense, people come and say, that's who he cared about the most. You can take that, wrap it up, and throw it away. Jesus did not just care about the poor and the weak the most. Listen to me. Jesus sees all people as valuable, and you want to know how I know that? 
Well, because Jesus shows us it. The very next story that happens is a story of a rich young ruler coming to Jesus. It's the very next thing in the text. Do you, do you see it right there? It says, right after he says, let the children come to me, a rich young ruler comes to him. Now, if I were Jesus and I wanted to communicate that the weak and the vulnerable have value, but I only really care about them and the rich and the powerful I've got no time for, the moment the rich young ruler comes to me, I would have said, right, this would have been the great illustration, let the children come to me, you go away. Is that what Jesus does, though? Do you know the story of the rich young ruler? He comes to Jesus, and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus doesn't say, go away, I don't have time for you because I only care about those who are vulnerable and weak. No, Jesus talks to him. He answers the rich young ruler's question. And as the story unfolds, I don't have time to do it. He engages him, trying to get this man to see that he had put all of his trust in his worldly possessions. Why does Jesus take the time to talk to the rich young ruler as well as the children? Why does he not just say, you know what, you're rich. You know what, you got your reward. Get out of here. Because Jesus sees all people as valuable. The rich and the poor, the young and the old, everyone in between. Jesus doesn't cast the rich young ruler out, neither does he cast out the children. He looks to engage with both, and what's he showing us? He's showing us that he's not a God who shows favoritism. He's showing us that he's a God who sees all people equally. And as we're going to see later on in one of the stories He's a God who desires that all people would be saved. What kind of king is Jesus? He's that kind of a king. And so if, if he's my king, if he's your king today, do you know what that means for you? It means that there's never a moment in your life as a follower of Jesus where he does not cast his care and his love upon you. He is a king who sees all people as valuable. And you know what? One of the challenges to me is, do I have the eyes of my king? Am I greater than Jesus? Do I carry with me the heart of my king as I go out into the world? Or do I put people in certain categories and say, this is a person I should give time and energies to because they're this type of person, but I don't have time for this type of person because they can't give me X, Y, or Z. If our king is this way and we are his subjects, we're called to reflect the heart of our king. But Jesus isn't just a king who sees all people as valuable. As he's making his way towards Jerusalem, he has to go through Jericho, the city. And chapter 18, verse 35 says that as he comes near Jericho, he encounters a blind man sitting by the roadside. And the blind man knows that Jesus is coming. He's heard stories of the power of Jesus and what he can do. And, and he says, who's coming? Why are the crowds there? Look at verse 37. And they said, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him. Does that sound familiar? Just like the disciples did. This is a blind man. Don't bother the teacher with this. They told him to be silent. Do you think that they were like, shh, shh, don't say anything. Don't say anything. Does that think how they treated him? Pretty sure they told him to shut up. Leave him alone. Yet he continued to cry out. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus, what does he do? Jesus stopped, 
and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. There's tremendous faith in this man, a trust in Jesus. He had this great physical need that no one could address. He was blind, and all he wanted was to see, and he believed that Jesus could heal him. And what does Jesus do? Verse 42, Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God and all the people. When they saw it and gave praise to God. He sees the children he engages them. He engages with the rich young ruler and, and engaging these two different groups of people. He's saying, I see all people as valuable. But then he comes to the blind man and you could say the same thing. Look at he takes time to engage this blind man. But why does he take time to engage this blind man? What's Jesus doing here? Ultimately, he hears this blind man calling out to him in faith, would you heal me? And Jesus stops. His, his face is set towards Jerusalem to do the, the task that must be done to die for our sins. That is utmost. But in the midst of his going to Jerusalem, he stops to do this, to heal a blind man. Now we know that one of the reasons that Jesus performed his miracles was to solidify himself as the God with all the power but there's another reason why Jesus does these miracles, why he takes the time to heal a blind man, and it's this. He shows us that he is a king who cares about his people's physical needs. And again, I draw our attention to this because sometimes we can take Jesus and we can take him as the great spiritual teacher that he is. We can take him as our savior, which he is, but he's also the king who cares for us, who in his earthly ministry demonstrated that you're not just a spiritual being, you're a physical being as well. And his healing miracles were to often bring relief and to help to those who were ailing. Why? Because he cares about the totality of the person. And a few weeks ago, we spent a significant amount of time as a church looking at the Lord's Prayer, where this is acknowledged as true. Because what happens in the Lord's Prayer? Jesus invites us to pray. See, it wasn't just his MO while he was here on earth to help people with their physical needs. Jesus says, whenever you pray, pray this, pray this way. Give us this day our what? Our daily bread. Yes, God cares about your heart, your speech, your actions, and he's looking to make you year by year, day by day, to look more like his son, Jesus Christ. But he is a God, do you believe it, who cares about your physical needs? He cares about your cancer. He cares about your sickness. He cares about your COVID. He cares that you would have food and clothing. Over and over again, he says, I want you to understand me as a God who cares about the whole person. And so when he heals people physically, just don't read those and say, look at how powerful he was back then. Because he still invites us to pray and to ask him to meet physical needs. Now, I'm about to share with you a story here, and, and I don't want you to get sidetracked. I just want you to see the overall heart of the story. Um, 
Because God meets physical needs in many, many ways. And sometimes he does bring healing. We have people in the hospital right now that, that we're praying for, and when they get healed, we, we celebrate that. But can I just share you something that God was just like, I'm, gonna get, I'm just going to do something for your heart this week. Um, you know, we're coming to the end of the, the education building, and God has been very grateful, in, or God has been very generous in what he's provided for that building to be paid for. We meet every Wednesday, and we still pray. We still pray for God to do things for that. And pretty much all the costs for that building are pretty much all locked in at this point and things. But, but Dean and I were over there praying uh, on Wednesday and, and I was like, you know what, I just want to, you know, I just want to just pray that, I don't know, you know, there's very few contracts that are left, but people could still donate time or, or still lower the cost of a couple of the things that we have to do and we're looking to put in a playground and they gave us a quote and it was a good deal. And, and so we just prayed again. We're just like, Lord, if there's any way that we can still save money Money on this, Lord, what would you just would you just do that? And so and so we just pray. And I'm like, there's not really any more things to really cut. It would really be remarkable. And Dean comes back to me a few days later with a smile on his face. He says, he says, you know what? You're you're not gonna believe this. He's like, you know, the company that's putting in the playground. He said, you know, they they already lowered the cost of this one thing by fifteen hundred dollars. And then they came to us and they just said, you know what? We're gonna give you a let's just call it a spring discount. We're gonna lower it another ten thousand dollars. And we're just like, and I'm just like, you know, like already they were giving us a deal and then they went ahead and they just did that. And we just had prayed about it the day before because we want to be good stewards of what God has given, given us. And it's just a, just a little thing. I mean, I just, I look at it and I say, like, God, why would you do that? Like, he didn't have to do that. But he shows that he's like, no, I'm listening. I care. Do you believe that he cares for you? Don't hold any, why am I sharing this with you? Like, don't hold back from him. Because he's a king that cares for your physical needs. He shows it all throughout the scriptures. And we want to be a people who embrace him in that way and say, we'll go to him. We'll take our, our physical needs to him. He cares for the whole person. And when we see a king like that, you know what else it tells us. If we're followers of this king, it means we too should care about people's physical needs. We don't want to just be a church who fulfill our mission to be and make disciples and don't recognize that there are needs in this world, needs that our neighbors have. It's why we have a mercy fund here as a church. It's why we encourage people to be aware of the needs of their friends and their neighbors, not just so that we can pray for them, but are there physical, tangible ways that we can help? Because that's what our king does. He's a king who values all people. He's a king who cares for physical needs of his people. But then there's this, Jesus is a king who shows grace to the undeserving. You know, after he meets with the blind man on the way to Jericho, he gets inside of Jericho. He gets into the city, and inside of the city is the wee little man. Some of you are, are going to catch on to this. There's a man by the name of Zacchaeus who lived in the city of Jericho at that time. And the text tells us that when Jesus went into the city of Jericho, um, Zacchaeus was there, and Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Now, let's get a little background on Zacchaeus and on tax collectors. Zacchaeus, tax collectors in that day, were considered the scum of the earth, according to the Jewish people. If you were a Jewish tax collector, you were anathema to your fellow countrymen, because here's the deal. If you were a tax collector like Zacchaeus was, it meant that you took money from your very own people, 
collected that money and then gave it to the conquering army, the Romans, the occupying army, the Romans. And so when you looked at a tax collector as a Jew and you looked at somebody like Zacchaeus, you said, you're a traitor. You are literally helping the enemy. And if that wasn't bad enough, tax collectors were swindlers and liars and thieves because they had the Romans backing them you would come in, I would tell you, you owe $1,000, when in reality you only owed Rome $800. Guess who would get the other 200 The mercy fund? No, no. Zacchaeus would take the extra $200. And you'd be like, I think it's only 800 And you'd be like, oh, you want to push me on this? Because you'd have a centurion right there. So Zacchaeus was considered an absolute traitor and enemy. People hated him. And so he comes in, Jesus, into Jericho. Jesus is walking through. Zacchaeus wants to see him because he's a small man, the text says, small in stature. He climbs up in a sycamore tree. Good, all right, so you know the song. For the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, right, that's what happens. He goes in the tree because nobody's going to let him see Jesus because they don't want him. They, they make him climb a tree. And what does Jesus do? He comes to the place where Zacchaeus was, and he says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Out of all the people in Jericho, he doesn't go to the rabbis who are there. He doesn't go to the religious people that are there. The one person whose house Jesus says, I'm going to visit and spend time with is the traitor, enemy of the state, the sinner, the thief, Zacchaeus. What's he doing here, friends? We know from what Jesus says at the end of the story that his whole purpose for engaging Zacchaeus was so that Zacchaeus might be saved. Look down at what it says in verse 10 of chapter 19. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the what? The lost. I called upon Zacchaeus. I desired to go to his house because this man who is a thief, a traitor, and a sinner. I want to see his life transformed. And notice, he doesn't say, I'm going to go to Zacchaeus' house after Zacchaeus pays back all the people that he's stolen from. I'm not going to go to Zacchaeus' house until he gets his act together and stops being a tax collector. Jesus this is why I say is a king who shows grace to the undeserving because he calls out to Zacchaeus, not when Zacchaeus has his life together and is all shiny and good and righteous, but while Zacchaeus is still the wretched sinner that he is, Jesus invites himself into Zacchaeus' home. What that story and what Jesus is saying is, I'm inviting myself into your life. And make no mistake, Zacchaeus experiences that grace. He knows himself as undeserving because his response to, Zach, to Jesus coming to his house, look at what it says, and starting in verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. 
Zacchaeus recognizes that he is completely undeserving of Jesus coming into his home. But that encounter with Jesus, Jesus calling out to him, absolutely transforms his life. Friends, Zacchaeus was the untouchable. Zacchaeus was the sinner. Zacchaeus was the person with whom you or I would not want a friendship, and yet Jesus doesn't hesitate to reach out to him. I wonder how many of us read the story of Zacchaeus and realize Zacchaeus is all of us. Do you know that? Why is this story here? Is it just illustrating to us that Jesus goes after the most wretched, the most unrighteous? You see, if it is a story of that, then praise the Lord, because guess what? We are all the most wretched. We are all the most unrighteous. There is none righteous, not even what? One. If you're not righteous, that would make you what? Unrighteous. See, what's the difference between righteous and unrighteous? One is righteous, one is not righteous. If you're not righteous, you are unrighteous. It's not like there's gradation of unrighteous. It's either you are this or you're not. And guess what? The only way that the unrighteous can be welcomed into the presence of the righteous is through the act of grace. And so Paul would write this, but when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in the flesh, in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. If Jesus is not a king who shows grace to the undeserving, then he could never be your king. Because there's no one here who deserves a king who values them, a king who provides for them, a king who loves them like Jesus, unless he showed them grace. And that's what he's done for us. Jesus shows grace to the undeserving. Do you believe that you are undeserving? You won't accept the magnitude of a king like this unless you really see your state. You want to know how much you understand the grace of Jesus? I'm going to tell you a story. And I want to know, I don't say it verbally, but I want you to hear this story and tell me what your thoughts are on it. There's a woman by the name of Tessica Brown. Tessica Brown, you probably heard about. She became what we like to call uh, insta-famous because Tessica Brown one day wanted to do her hair, and she ran out of the hairspray hold that she normally used for her hair and instead used Gorilla Glue adhesive spray to hold her hair in place. Yeah, you can imagine what happened. Uh, that adhesive glue is not intended to be used on hair. So she sprayed her hair and her head became like a helmet and tight and it pulled. And she posted on her TikTok or Instagram or whatever what she had done. Now what was interesting was people's reaction. What do you think most people said to her? You're an idiot. <laughs> Yet there was this doctor all the way out here in California, Dr. Michael Obang, who saw this. And even 
Tessica's friends started a GoFundMe page for her because they're like, how are we going to treat, literally, she couldn't, she couldn't wash it. Like her hair, that adhesive had literally cemented her hair. Yet this doctor out here, a cosmetic doctor, uh, had a background in chemistry and he figured out a way. He took time and he took energy to develop a compound and then to fly Tessica all the way from her home to California to treat her in order to remove the adhesive from her hair. Now, when you heard that story, was your first thoughts, like mine was, because I'm a sinner, that person was a complete fool. Like, why should this doctor take the time and the energy to help somebody when they've done something so, so foolish? Am I the only one who thought that? You're all like, look at your eyes. You're so judging of me. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> what did the doctor show her? Grace, did she deserve that kind of treatment? No. My friends, Jesus has done something far greater for us. He's shown grace to the undeserving. You see, because there's two final quick things that I want you to see in the text, two, two more stories that happen that just show that the magnitude of the kind of king Jesus is. In Luke chapter 19, 41 through 44, I just got to gotta read this. Jesus enters into Jerusalem. He has a triumphal entry, and then he kind of does a U-turn, and he walks, comes back out of Jerusalem. and says, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This contains one of the shortest verses in all the Bible. Jesus wept. Jesus looks over Jerusalem, which has just welcomed him in as king, and he knows that just a few days later, it's going to say crucify him. And Jesus' response is, go to hell. Is that what he says? He weeps. He weeps. He looks upon this city, and instead of pronouncing judgment as he's the only one who could, he weeps and he says, I wish that you, all of you, would know me as the one who brings you peace, because if you did, if you did, you would be saved. What's Jesus showing us in his heart in this moment? Jesus is a king who has compassion for his enemies. These same people who will pronounce a judgment of death upon him, Jesus says, I wish that you would know peace. He weeps over them. Like I just said a moment ago that he shows compassion, and we see that with Zach. He shows grace to the undeserving. What does he do for the entirety of these people? He wishes that none would perish. The kind of compassion... Listen, I read this this week, and I just was praying. I was like, I want the heart of my king, don't you? I don't want to see the world as an us versus them mentality. 
I know that we must stand firm upon the truth of God's word. As we've been going through the book of Daniel, we've been making that point. But nonetheless, I want to have compassion upon the lost. I, I want to stand for the truth, and I want to proclaim what is right, but I don't want to become so hard in my heart that I don't see people the way that God sees them. I want to be someone who extends compassion because you see, the final thing that this story tells us, and I skipped over these verses on purpose, when you look at all these little encounters that Jesus has, just all right around his entry into Jerusalem, the final thing that we see in Jesus is Jesus is a king who makes the ultimate sacrifice for his people. You want to know the depths of the king? What's in his heart? Look at this, back in verse 18. Before he encounters the beggar, the blind man, in chapter 18, verse 31, we skipped over this, but look at what Jesus does. And taking the 12, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and after flogging him, they will kill him and on the third day he will what? Rise. See, we have entered into Holy Week. We've entered into this week where we celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus, but all of what Jesus is doing as king culminates with Jesus making the ultimate sacrifice on that Good Friday for us. Wishing that none could, should perish, Jesus dies the death that we should have died so that we might not face the judgment that we all deserve. Scriptures tell us in the book of Romans that someone might dare to die for a good person for a righteous person, some might, might even die. But to die for your enemies, to die for those who would reject you, that's what Jesus has done. And so in the Gospel of John, we read these words from Jesus. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for my sheep. He cares for physical needs. He values all people. He takes care of the physical needs of people and he shows compassion on his enemies and he shows grace, but he does what no other king could do or would do. He lays down his life to bring salvation. This is our king. Do you know him? Do you love him? When you pray to him, this is who you are praying to. As we come to this Palm Sunday, we celebrate Jesus, our King. This is who He is. This is what He has done. My prayer for us as a church, as a people, is that we would go out into the world willingly living under His reign and rule and expressing the same heart that our King has. And so I'm going to pray for us right now. I want you to bow your heads with me. As we, as we come to this time, I want to pray for us. And I want to pray that Maybe it's all of these truths. Maybe it's just one of them. But that it would so get into our hearts and minds today that as we engage the world, we engage it the way that our king has engaged it. And that if there's any of you that are in this place today, heads are bowed, eyes are closed, this is just a moment of reflection for you that you would consider in this moment, 
Is Jesus my king? Have I come to accept the salvation and the sacrifice that he has made for me? I'm here to tell you, nothing in this world, no person, no relationship, no money, no business would make the sacrifice or could make the sacrifice that could bring you from death to life. Only Jesus can. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that you might be saved. And so that's what we proclaim in this place. And so, Jesus, we come before you and we say thank you that you're a king who has loved us in this way, who has demonstrated both in your time here on earth and in your ongoing grace and mercy in our lives that you are this kind of king. May we not lose sight of these truths. And whichever truth our heart needs, Holy Spirit, would you take that? Would you work it over in us? Let's not project an image of you, Jesus as the king that you're not, but as the king that you truly are. To the praise and glory of your name, we ask this. And all God's people said, amen, amen.